Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a lie killer, urban gorilla. I gotta be a rough nag. Free the Black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for Free the Black Panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can lock my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black gone, black power moves. You telling lies, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me, you can lock my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free, okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police, Feds infiltrated our movement for black leadership roles, but we still here in the bill here. Up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, kid, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock left up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. The most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police department to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
Hello, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared debate on the motion that the West should pay reparations for slavery. The issue of reparations has gathered momentum and a renewed sense of urgency in recent years. In America, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who is running for the Democratic presidential nomination, has backed reparations for African Americans. And closer to home, at the recent Labour Party conference, senior figures called for reparations, including the shadow chancellor, John McDonnell, who suggested that one way that Britain could do this would be through sharing free or cheap green technology with its former colonies. Cambridge University has announced that it will investigate its links with slavery and how the university gained financially from it. And Glasgow University has become the first British university to set up a reparative justice scheme, committing to pay 20 million in reparations to atone for the university's links to the slave trade. But not everybody agrees that this is the best way forward. They argue that we are talking about crimes committed by and to people long since gone. They argue that the costs would cripple economies and hurt the people reparations claim to want to help. So that's what we're going to be debating tonight. And so, without further ado, let's open up the debate. Our first speaker for the motion is Kahinde Andrews. He is a professor of black studies at Birmingham University, a regular opinion writer for The Guardian, and was part of the team that launched the first black studies degree in Europe. He is author of Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century. His family is from Jamaica, and he is a descendant of enslaved Africans. Okay. Okay, so thank you. Um, in 2018, the HMRC, it was, it was a treasury, released a tweet that had a surprising Friday fact. Now, you may know what this fact was, as they tweeted it, incorrectly actually, that millions of you have, millions of you have helped end the slave trade through your taxation. Because in, and this is actually incorrect, because actually the slave trade and slavery are different things, which is something lost on the Treasury and lost on most commentators on this issue. The slave trade was abolished in 1807 uh, by the United Kingdom after the fear of Africans in the Haitian Revolution. Slavery continued for another 20 or so years, uh, carried on. What the, H what the Treasury was talking about in this particular instance was the abolition of slavery in the British Empire, which did happen in 1833 or really 1834, and, it, and your tax money, you will be happy to know, merrily happy to know, went into helping end slavery. But how did it do this? It did this because in order to end the system of slavery, the government paid the biggest bailout in the history of UK, the UK of the UK economy to the slave owners. They actually paid reparations to the slave owners. A figure so large they had to take out a loan from the Treasury, a loan that was so big they only paid it back in 2015. Which means that me, descendant of slave, my mom, descendant of slave, my dad, descendant of slave, and half of you in the room, potentially descendant of slaves, all paid slavery reparations to slave owners. So, the principle has already been established that reparations are due. The question is, who are they due to? All right? Now, worse still than the kind of merry celebration of the treasury of this fact is that that wasn't the only reparation that was paid to the slave owners by the British. They, when slavery ended, they had a period of four years of apprenticeship where the formerly enslaved had to spend 
half of their day working for free for the slave masters. So they had to actually pay reparations with their own labor. Again, the principle of reparations is firmly established. It wasn't just, this didn't just happen in the UK. Uh, Denmark, Holland, Spain, all paid reparations to slave owners. In fact, Haiti, as I already mentioned, the price of their freeing themselves, liberating themselves from France, was in 1825, they submitted to a 150 million franc debt to the French in reparation to who? Slave owners. A, a, a m- amount of money so large that it took 122 years for Haiti to pay off. In fact, one of the reasons Haiti is the poorest country in the world today is because of it had to pay that debt off for 122 years. So when we talk about the idea of slavery being something in the past, we are being completely ignorant. Because up until 2015, me and you were still paying off this debt. Again, a debt so large. But it, was, it represented 40% of the British government's purse at that time. 40%, imagine that. 40% of the government's purse and 5% of GDP. In today's money, that is £100 billion. Pounds. Reparations to who? The slave owners. So, why have established that reparations are, are well established in the history of law and went to the slave owners? I could probably stop and sit down for the next six minutes. But I won't. I'll carry on and give you more evidence of why reparations are due. Right? So, we've established the slave, the slave owners got a lot of money. This money went to people, like, it went to the church, it went to government, it went to um, companies, it went to people like David Cameron's family, and this money still actually is with us in the economy today. What I really want to stress for you here is this is not an issue of something that happened in the past because the wealth that was derived from slavery is still with us today. So when we talk about the West, the West really emerges in, after 1492 when Columbus sails the ocean blue. I'm sure you have heard the story which has been dubbed Once Upon a Genocide. After they had, after they had killed 98% of the natives of the Americas, needed labor in order to build what became, and it's not a coincidence America is the leader of the free world, the richest country on the planet. It's because the um, the founding of the Americas was absolutely essential to the development of the West. And whose labor was it that developed America? The Americas. When I say the Americas, I mean North America, the Caribbean, Latin America. It was enslaved Africans. Millions upon millions upon millions of people taken, stolen from, stolen from Africa to do the work for free for 300 years. The biggest lie the West will tell you is that when they encountered Africa, Asia, the other parts of the world, they were advanced. And because of this advancement, we were able to have capitalism and uh, what we call so-called civilization. Right? This is actually untrue. In 1492, Europe was coming out of a dark age and was the only place on the planet that had actually was in a dark age at that period of time. Europe was not advanced in 1492. Europe had to unveil itself to the Eastern Empire. And one of the primary ways that Europe and the West became rich was through the enslavement of African people. The 300-year cycle of the triangular trade that generated so much wealth, it accelerated the Western, Western capitalism and built the world we have today. So if you think about somewhere like, like, like Britain, look at this city we're in today, London. London would be half its size without the wealth from slavery. Places like Liverpool, which was a dock, Bristol, which was also a dock, a port for the slave trade, would probably not exist in any way, shape or form without the wealth derived from slavery. Even places like, I'm from Birmingham. Birmingham made the majority of guns and chains uh, for the slave trade. And this is actually one of the ways in which Birmingham became the powerhouse that it was. 
And Manchester, the cotton industry, the cotton which we're so proud of in the factories up north, was again directly a link we've seen when Liverpool opened as a, slave, as a slave port, they built a canal to Manchester, and it's only after that that the Manchester trade in cotton, because where, where did cotton get derived from? Slavery. By 1788, there were 180,000 people uh, working in Manchester on money from the enslavement of African people. So even the cities we have today, the way the country looks today, is built on the wealth of slavery. Couldn't exist without it. So this isn't money that has gone away, it's money that is still here. A perfect example of this would be Lloyd's of London, UK's largest corporation, massive multi-billion corporation, that celebrated its 300th anniversary um, a couple of years ago. CEO was on television and proudly declared they were happy to celebrate their roots in ensuring the merchant trade. She neglected to mention that trade was the slave trade, right? In fact, whole industries like insurance, um, like some of... Uh, Many of our financial products and financial that make financial capitalism what it is, derived from where? Slavery, stocks, bonds. These words are not used by accident. They actually tell you the roots of where these things come from. Lloyd's of London, before it was insuring slave voyages, was a coffee house. And it was a coffee house in London where they would, they, they would advertise for runaway slaves. So there were the enslaved Africans in the UK. And the runaway slaves in London would be returned to where? The Lloyds of London coffee house. This is how inveiled capitalism and slavery are. So when we talk, the wealth is around us. You can see it everywhere. You can see it in these university spaces. You can see it just walk down the road. You can see the wealth. The wealth is still here. Our current system is, 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 is the way it is because of the money derived from African uh, slavery. So this gets us to the case of reparations. Unpaid labor for 300 years untold psychological and human damage. Um, and reparations, again, and I remind you, significant reparations paid to the slave owners. And what did the slaves receive? Less than nothing. Not even nothing, less than nothing. Had to buy their freedom through work in the, in the UK. Had to buy their freedom in places like Haiti. And, this, so when, and when we think about that, time doesn't stop after the enslavement of African people. When slavery ends, what happens? So Britain, my family has said, Jamaica, you are left with a place in a country which is built on a plantation economy. That's all it is. There's nothing else there. There's no other development than plantation economy. Uh, you are left with no, nothing, nothing to show for your labor uh, for the last 300 years. You are left in absolute destitute poverty. You are also, slavery ends and colonialism then continues. It's not like they just stopped and ended and finished. Malcolm X has a quote where he says, if you stab a knife nine inches into my back, and only take it out three inches. That's not progress. Even if you take the knife all the way out, that's still not progress. Unless you heal the wound, no progress has been made. Unfortunately, the knife is still firmly in our backs, right? Nothing has been done to redress the balance, which explains why places like Jamaica are extraordinarily poor, which explains why my family migrated from Jamaica to this country and experienced racism and still experience racism today. If you want to understand why the world is the way the world is, why racial oppression is here in America, in the Caribbean, and in Africa. Remember, millions of people taken from Africa. The impact on, Africans, on the African economy was devastating. What slavery did was it ushered in a world of white supremacy. The creation of the Negro. The idea that I am not fully human and can be used as a beast of burden. It created the idea of white supremacy. Black on the bottom, white on the top, and everybody else in between. And if you look today at global inequality, what do you see? 
Africa, black at the bottom. The West, largely white at the top. And everybody else in between. The legacy of slavery is not something past, it is something withered. And there is a substantial debt owed to those who suffered from it. Thank you. Thank you, Kinde. Next up, we have our first speaker against the motion, Catherine Barbell Singh. Catherine is headmistress and co-founder of Macadia Community School in London. She's the author of two books, including To Miss With Love, based on her blog, describing her experiences teaching at an inner city secondary school. Her mother is Jamaican and her father is Guyanese. She is a descendant of slaves, slave owners, and indentured laborers. Well, I don't actually disagree with lots of what Kayinde said, um, except for his conclusion, of course, that reparations should be paid. Slavery was an abomination, and if you read about the terrible things done to slaves, it's hard not to cry. But today's debate isn't about whether or not slavery was bad or good. It's about whether the West should pay reparations for slavery. Which West ought to pay? The Portuguese who brought the slaves, the Dutch who provided the boats, the British who provided the insurance, the Portuguese, Spanish, and French who ran the largest colonies? And what of the African people who sold their brothers and sisters in exchange for guns, allowing them to grow their own kingdoms? Then there's Brazil. Is it part of the West? Of the 12 million Africans that were shipped across the Atlantic, Brazil received nearly 5 million of them. So why are we only discussing whether the West should pay for reparations for slavery? Hard to come up with an answer. So let's put aside the complexities of who might pay for these reparations and turn our minds instead to who might be the specific recipients of the money. What I want to know is, what am I going to get out of this? I mean, after all, I'd quite like a new car. Perhaps I could upgrade my flat and get something nice just off the corner of Oxford Street. And I'm definitely entitled. Sari, my parents come from the Caribbean. My mother is black Jamaican. But then my father... Well, he doesn't really come from slaves. He's Indo-Caribbean from Guyana. Of course, his people were indentured servants. When slavery was abolished, Indians were taken to the Caribbean to take the place of the slaves who had been freed. Somebody had to do the work. My father's family lived in the same huts as the slaves once did, were tied to the same families as the slaves once were. Just instead of my father's grandparents being bought and sold, instead it was their contract of indenture that was bought and sold and obligated them to work for the time period set by their owners. The conditions were horrific. My illiterate grandmother might have told you all about this herself had the poverty and environment that engulfed Indian indentured laborers in the Caribbean not been so grotesque that she died when my father was only six years old. But I'll forget that story because my father's mother and their people weren't slaves and that isn't going to deliver me the cash, is it? I'll stick with my black Jamaican mother. Not sure what we do with people like Kamala Harris, one of the candidates for the Democratic nomination of the US presidency. Her mother is from India. Her father is from Jamaica. Her father admits that his family owned slaves. Does she get a piece of the pie? Barack Obama is black, but his mother is white and descends from slave owners, like so many mixed-race people. So do they get half payments instead of full payments? How is this all meant to work, anyway? I'll tell you one way in which it might work. There are various websites out there 
right now in 2019, this is mainly an American thing, where black people are getting white people to donate money for, to them, you know, in the guise of reparations. So I'll read out one of these sites to you. It's a real site run by a black American woman who right now is collecting cash from white people because of reparations owed to her. So there are instructions for black people and for white people here. So for black people in the audience, listen up. Number one, if you are black and a descendant of chattel slavery, please put your PayPal, Vemno, and or cash app in the comments of this post. Number two, you do not have to plead your case or share why you are participating. Being black is enough. So black people in the audience, you want some extra money to go out on the weekend? Just get your PayPal information on there. Now, white people, these are the guidelines. Number one, realizing that you have white privilege or that you are inherently racist is not sufficient. Okay? It's not sufficient to recognize that you have white privilege. Take action that gives your power away, white people. So right now, think of that action. What's it going to be? Number two, this is not a substitute for reparations from the government. This should be every politician's platform. Are you demanding this from them, white people? Are you writing to your local MP and demanding reparations? Number three, you can give $1, $5, $10, $50, $100, $1,000, $10,000, $10, whatever works for you, little smiley face. So you can give this young woman $10,000 and get rid of your white guilt. Now, this young woman leaves out the equation that slavery isn't just black and white. The first point is that everyone had slaves, okay? People of all colors became slaves for economic reasons, because of war, because slavery, as odious as it was, was simply a normal way of life. Arabs were extracting millions of black African slaves centuries before Christian nations did, for about 13 centuries, compared to the three centuries European nations ran the Atlantic slave trade. Arabs marched African slaves across the Sahara Desert, and as such, they died more often. It was customary to castrate them, and many died from this practice. The Arabs also enslaved over one million white European Christians. The term slavery, in fact, comes from the word Slav. The Slavs inhabited Eastern Europe and were taken by the Muslims of Spain in the 9th century, not to mention that Africans had been enslaving each other for thousands of years. The point is that slavery... The second point is that slavery was not about race, and that's important. It was not about race. The only reason we think it's about race is because philosophers like David Hume in the 18th century ranked human beings and put Africans at the bottom, saying that they had no souls. The Enlightenment imposed the concept of race on a practice that had been going on for centuries in order to justify that practice. And why did they have to justify it? And this is the point. Because people in the West began to question slavery's moral validity. The fact is that people of all colors owned slaves, both as part of the Atlantic slave trade and outside of it. In the United States and Caribbean, black people, black people owned thousands of black slaves, and so did the Native Americans. Nearly 20,000 of the Native American five civilized tribes sided with the Confederacy during the Civil War, fighting to keep slavery alive. 28% of the black population who were free in New Orleans pledged their support to the Confederacy. All of the 13 southern states of the Confederacy had substantial numbers of black slave owners. There were more than 250,000 free blacks, and nearly 4,000 of them were slave masters, who owned more than 20,000 slaves. The practice of slavery was legal, after all. We need to remember that governments did not own slaves. Slave owners did. In fact, the U.S. government fought a war to end slavery. How much should the descendants of the 400,000 Union soldiers who lost their lives fighting to free the slaves pay to the descendants of the slaves they freed? 
It's bizarre to suggest that human beings should inherit the outrage of the deeds of their parents. Should the child born from a rapist be branded a rapist because of his father's criminality? Should the child of a mass murderer be sent to prison because of his father's crime? No. In America, in the main, it was the Democrats who owned slaves, and the Democrats who in the main passed and enforced Jim Crow laws. It was also the Democrats who founded the Ku Klux Klan. Should the current Democratic Party be held responsible for this? No, we do not inherit the sins of our fathers. Aside from the fact that it would be simply impossible to make reparations work in any sensible or practical way, one must ask whether it would be helpful to the people one is trying to help. This is key, because we assume that reparations are going to help them. Giving people lump sums of money does not work. Economists often point to the Georgia Land Lottery of 1832, in which parcels of land were distributed randomly. What happened to the descendants of those who were lucky enough to be given this land? Are they the richest families in Georgia? No. In fact, within one generation after the distribution of the Georgia land, one could not distinguish between those who had been given land and those who hadn't. Certainly my own direct experiences of working for 20 plus years in the inner city with families on welfare demonstrates this time and time again. Rather than give a man a fish, it is always better to teach him how to fish. All giving the fish does is make the giver feel better. Reparations might relieve white people of their guilt, but it will do little else. So back to my initial question. Why are we only discussing whether the West should pay reparations for slavery? Because while slavery was common to all civilizations, only one civilization developed a moral revulsion against it very late in its history, Western civilization. Not even the leading moralists in other civilizations rejected slavery at all. Rather than be ashamed as Westerners, we should stand proud for having led the world out of a mentality where slavery was the norm, and we should vote against this motion. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Our second speaker for the motion is Esther Stanford Fezi. She's a reparations activist and lawyer. She is co-vice chair of the Pan-African Reparations Coalition in Europe. As a, descendant of in, as a descendant of Africans enslaved in the Caribbean, her activism seeks to remember the historic and cultural ties between diaspora communities and their African motherland. Thank you. Um, my thesis, I have three main arguments that reparations for slavery are not just about the period of chattel enslavement. Secondly, that reparations about, are about much more than money. And thirdly, that reparations are not a divisive issue, that they are the only approach that can transform our broken societies. The reason why we're talking about why the West should pay reparations for slavery is because the conversations about Arab enslavement and their responsibilities and the complicity of some African collaborators is already taking place. So when I talk about the West paying, I'd first of all like to uh, clarify that when I refer to the West, I'm referring to the conceptual West, which is the elitist construct of Euro-American elites or the oligarchy. 
Secondly, when I argue that the West should pay, I'm referring to the notion of payment as taking responsibility for wrongs committed and harms inflicted. And by this, I mean that the Western establishment should take collective responsibility for meeting the reparatory justice needs of African heritage communities and indigenous peoples who were subjected to the criminality of the crimes of genocide and ecocide, which collectively constitute the Ma'angamizi, a key Swahili term meaning the African Holocaust or African Holocaust and continuum of chattel, colonial and neo-colonial forms of enslavement. Secondly, it's about providing or redistributing wealth and resources that have been gained by unjust enrichment and have left a legacy of unjust impoverishment for the descendants of the African enslaved people. In 2001, at the World Conference Against Racism that was held in South Africa, it reaffirmed fundamental human rights of people of African descent, particularly the right to be repaired from criminal and injurious acts of one's government. In the official outcome document of the conference, the governmental delegates declared that the so-called transatlantic slave trade, slavery, apartheid and colonialism were crimes against humanity. Further, that there was an economic basis to these crimes that are evident today in the injuring nations that are wealthy and also the impoverishment of much of the global south and those of us who are from those communities originally from the global south. The Durban Declaration also declared that the effects and the persistence of these structures and practices have been among the factors contributing to lasting social and economic inequalities, poverty, underdevelopment, marginalization, and social exclusion in many parts of the world today, and even further, that there is an obligation on the part of those nations that were criminally enriched by these crimes that they should engage in redress. Secondly, my argument is that reparations for chattel enslavement is not just about the period of chattel enslavement. In fact, in 2001, Human Rights Watch helpfully expounded when addressing relatively old wrongs, we would base claims of reparations not on the past abuses of chattel enslavement itself, but on its contemporary effects. That is, we would focus on people who can reasonably claim that today they personally suffer the effects of past human rights violations through continuing economic or social deprivation. And when it comes to the matter of crimes against humanity, the right to reparations does not get extinguished with the death of the original victims, but can be pursued by his or her heirs. Hence why we in PARCO, the Pan-African Reparations Coalition that I represent, initiated the Stop the Ma'angamizi We Charge Genocide Ecocide campaign, which was inspired by the holistic and historic call of Africans in America 
under the auspices of the Civil Rights Congress of the USA in 1951, who sought to bring the United States government to account for the crimes of genocide against African people in America. Even under traditional human rights law and policy, it is expected that governments that practice or tolerate systemic, structural and institutionalized anti-black African prejudice and racial discrimination and its specific form of Afrophobia, that they should actually compensate the victims and certainly bring about an end to this condition. So, reparations are about much more than money. If we go to the root of the term reparations in Latin, it is repare. And that is basically about renewing and transforming. And it's the act or the instance of making amends. If we go to international law, the premise for reparations was laid out in the Chorzo Satri case of 1928, which is that reparation must, as far as possible, wipe out all the consequences of the illegal act and re-establish the situation which would in all of probability have existed if that act had not been committed. And so, under the basic principles and guidelines on the right to a remedy and reparation, for victims of gross violations of international human rights law and serious violations of international humanitarian law, it is recognised that reparations consist of measures of cessation, assurances and guarantees of non-repetition, restitution and voluntary forms of repatriation, compensation, rehabilitation and measures of satisfaction which are about looking at moral damage, emotional injury, intergenerational trauma, mental suffering and the injury to reparation, to, sorry, one's reputation. So reparations are not a divisive issue. They are the only approach that can transform our broken and divided societies. According to the same United Nations guidelines on reparations, an essential aspect of reparations includes an opportunity for victims, and in international law, the descendants of the enslaved are classified as victims, not in the way that we use it in popular speak, but it means that we have a right to claim a remedy and be recognised in law. So victims have a right to speak in a public forum about their experiences and to have an active involvement in the reparative process. The Stop the Mangamizi campaign and the 18,000 plus people that have signed the Stop the Mangamizi petition urge that there is a need for dialogue between British state and society and the way in which this dialogue can happen is by establishing the all-party parliamentary commission of inquiry for truth and reparatory justice, which has terms of reference including examining the de jure and de facto racial and economic discrimination which impact people of African descent today and to look at the impact of historic enslavement on African descendant communities, as well as to make recommendations to Parliament and other similar bodies on how best to repair the legacies of enslavement and colonisation today. We in the Stop the Maangamizi campaign believe that establishing this all-party parliamentary commission of inquiry 
will go a long way towards institutionalizing a reparative, truth-seeking process that will contribute to healing and restoring the descendants of the enslaved and facilitating racial justice and equity between the descendants of the enslaved as well as the enslavers today and, of course, in wider society. However, such repair of the relationship between people of African descent and the rest of society cannot take place without public acknowledgement of the crimes against African people and their descendants over five centuries and counting and without UK governmental action to enable redress and reparation for the brutal injustices committed not only in the past but which still continue into the present. That is my case. The West should pay reparations for slavery by taking responsibility for living up to their declarations of respecting human rights and the rule of law. Thank you, Esther. Um, and our final speaker against the motion is Tony Sewell. He's an educational consultant and CEO of the charity Generating Genius and helped to set up the Science, Maths and IT Centre at Jamaica's University of the West Indies. He is author of Black Masculinities and Schooling, How Black Boys Survive Modern Schooling, and he was born in London to Jamaican immigrants. He is a descendant of enslaved Africans. Yes, um, uh, hopefully, hopefully you give both um, sides the, the right amount of applause because uh, and, and, I'm, I'm very sensitive to what happens here. Look, um, look I want to argue this at a different angle. Um, I, 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 want, I want to argue that reparations is actually a regressive step for black majority countries and black individuals. And I say that in, in a generic sense. Um, and because it mainly gives too much power and agency actually to white people. I actually think that the arguments placed before, just before, is that they're actually a bit too soft. I, I, I think they need to go further. Uh, and, 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 I, I, and I think in, in some ways, I mean, what I mean by go further, I mean in, in, in terms of really what um, I suppose we could talk about the agency and power of black people themselves and what they bring to this. And if you look at the leaders, Booker T. Washington, Malcolm X, the Black Power Movement, Maya Angelou, Oprah, um, and the key figure here is Marcus Garvey, the, the, the father, if you like, the father figure of Pan-Africanism. Not really interested in reparations, really. And if you look at their work, what they're actually arguing for is something completely opposite. In fact, they're arguing for, in fact, they see it as a kind of way in which it's a continual kind of step backwards because white people are there and we're begging for some money. The father of black nationalism, Marcus Garvey, argues that slavery was a mere interruption. Now, you might say, well, that's a bit harsh. I mean, in the sense that all of what was explained and all the horror of slavery, and he says it's a mere interruption. And what he actually means is that, look, there was a great history for black people and, and a great dignity before slavery. 
this thing came along. However, we actually almost redeemed ourselves, even inside slavery. We were doing that reparation work already on ourselves, on ourselves. And I think that's the issue. And I think that, um, so he wants Africa, and he wants a new Africa, and he wants a new kind of sense of identity in Africa. And he sees that as a new world built by black people, built by Africans themselves. Not with the money of white people, not with the guilt money, but because they can do it themselves. And he, he, bases, these three things, he bases it on three things. Self-reliance. So it wasn't surprising that so many Jamaicans, and my ancestors um, were enslaved, but they, ran off the, they, 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 they actually rebelled and ran away into the hills and started to just do the repair job on themselves. Yeah? Um, Africa as a site for opportunity, not as this broke-down place that we have to kind of give money to, and, we have, and all the kinds of notions we have about Africa, all the negative notions. I actually think some of the reparations debate and the people who support it add to that, add to that negativity. And of course, the notion of success, Bloody hell, when you hear these people talking about the state of black people, you just feel like you want to go, around, go out and sort of hang yourself or something. They're so depressing. They're so fucking depressing. And I think that really, we want to see, I see myself as a successful black man. I see myself as a positive black man. I see my, and I see black women in terms of a positive future. And I think that one of the things that, that the great African leaders that I see, the Garvey's, the Oprah's, the Maya Angelou's, can come to this in a way that is completely different and a, a different mindset at this. And, and in fact, it almost is in line with holding us back. Um, Oprah, let's just give one example. Oprah says once she has in her hallway of Winfrey uh, a picture of uh, a woman who's just been emancipated from slavery. And she's looking out and she's uh, uh, to the new world. And she says, she remembers what Maya Angelou said to her. Maya Angelou says this, um, Baby, your crown has been paid for, so put it on your head and wear it. In other words, my ancestors have already done all the hard work. They've already done all the reparations. Yeah? But Marty makes a beautiful song where he talks about the whole idea of the songs that he's created as being redemption songs. Now, people don't really, they sing that song and they don't really understand what he's saying. What he's really saying is, look, we Jamaicans, we've already unpacked it for ourselves. The, 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 the vase that was broken and then we had to put it back together in all different bits. But we put it back together, even though it wasn't the same. We put it back together creatively and we created a new culture and we created a new music, and we created a new identity, right inside slavery. So we don't need white people to come along and give us anything. Let me ask you a question, I mean, and let me just give you some quotes. This is Garvey, and he uses the word Negro, because in the 1920s, that was the word that they used to describe black people. He says, the Negro would have to build his own industry, art, science, literature, and cultures before the world will stop to consider him. So what he's talking about there is this self-reliance, this power of building yourself, 
not waiting around until white people decide to give you something. He also says this, we are going to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery. Remember, we are, not you lot, we are. Yeah? We are going to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery because whilst others might free the body, none but ourselves can free the mind. And he goes on again at the end. He says, our success, this is why I talk about the happiness bit in this, our success educationally, industrially and politically is based upon the protection of a nation founded by ourselves and that nation could be nowhere else but in Africa. Let me ask you a question. Which country, and we've heard all these things about Africa being in a bad way at the moment, which country in Africa at the moment is one of the fastest growing, has the fast, one of the fastest growing economies? Can you name the country? Come on, tell me, which one? Which one? Kenya. Kenya. Mm, not really, nearly. The, I'll tell you which one it is. And this is, this is the one that is surprising. It's Ethiopia. Here is the country. Remember Band-Aid? Do you remember that, that, the, the, the little children down there with the flies around them? And remember you having to pour in all that, that money into Ethiopia? And really and, and truly, the outcome of all that money went nowhere. Ethiopia, and I'll just quote this, is predicted to grow by 8.5% this year. This is no kind of country, little country there with, with little mud huts and kids flying around. This is a serious country. Now, why is it? And the issue is, it's not about reparations. It's about investment. What's happened is Ethiopia has decided, right, here are the terms between the West and us. What's going to happen now, and it's been the Chinese that's, that's understood this the best, is that you can come and invest in us. And investment means you're a real person then, because you get something out of it, we get something out of it. And we're grown-ups now. And that's the model for Africa. And that's the model for us also psychologically as well. You talk about the issue of um, the psychological problems around slavery and what it's done to, to black people. One of the biggest issues I find, I run a charity called Generating Genius, believe that? All my kids, a lot of my kids are black, a lot of my kids have come to me in terms of my program, really not going for much, and then ending up doing in the top companies in, in doing in sciences. And simply, all I've said to them is, forget all the negative kind of things said about you, not only about in terms of the racism, but also in terms of other black people saying you can't do it because you're black or because white people have to give you reparations, have to allow you to do it before you can be successful. So what I'm arguing today, and my argument is a different kind of angle on this, is that I think that part of the problem we're facing is actually within our own community. And I speak directly to black communities here. Part of our own problem in, in terms of seeing ourselves totally as victims. Ethiopia, that kind of broke-down country, no, everybody wanted to give. In fact, I think now there are Ethiopians ready now getting their um, food parcels ready to send to Sunderland. Yeah? <laughs> to help them out. Yeah? That's where Africa is going. And so I would argue here that um, in terms of the West, 
the West should invest because Africa and black people um, need that investment because they're worthy of it and they're worthy of it in terms of their, their, their sense of dignity and in terms of their, their um, sense that they're going to go somewhere. So my argument is, please um, <laughs> vote for me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Tony. Now I'm going to move on to taking some questions from the audience. So there will be ushers walking around. Anybody that has questions for the panelists, please raise your hands and the ushers will come to you. I'll take them in groups of three. Um, the, my question sort of in two parts for the gentleman who just spoke last. Um, you made great emphasis on Ethiopia being this um, benchmark for Africa but um, I think it's quite widely known that Ethiopia was one of the only countries that wasn't invaded as part of the slaves. Um, so, um, in, in colonialism, sorry. Um, and secondly, you mentioned the Chinese coming in with business opportunities. That is also viewed as a second wave of colonialism um, for, for some African countries. Okay, number one up here. Thank you for your question. Yes, um, Mr. Sewell as well. You talked about um, black people not being given anything. But again, it's widely known that, particularly in the U.S., at the same time when black people were not given 40 acres and a mule, millions of land were given to white people. Also, they were given loans, cheap loans. They were given college education. The advancement made by a lot of white people was because of what they were given. So the question is, why is it everybody else must be given, but not black people? And um, also the fact, I come from Trinidad, partly Indo-Trinidadian as well. Again, the Indian indentured laborers were given land at the end of their indentureship. Again, the blacks were the only ones not given. So I'd love to hear your perspective. Thank you so much. <laughs> and yeah, let's go to this lady here, number two. Thank you. So um, forgetting the emotional calls for reparations or the reasons why one can repair oneself, if I owe Vodafone money, and um, when they come to my house, they don't come just for exactly what was owed to them. They come and they can take my um, television, they can take whatever they want out of the house. There are laws in this country. There are laws in the U.S. as well. If people were working without being paid, and it is owed, the work of their hands is owed to them. It was very easy to calculate what reparations were owed to, owed to slave owners after their property was taken from them. I don't understand why it's more complicated to calculate what is owed to people when there were many things, including their lives, that were taken from them as well. If that is easy to calculate, then it's not, it shouldn't be that hard to calculate what the difference is. Um, you talked about the land that was given in Georgia, and you talked about um, studies that were done 
about what happened to the people many years after the land was given and how many of them had not become the richest um, families in that area. First of all, Atlanta is one of the richest um, areas in the U.S., particularly for people of color. And the second piece of that is that was Jim Crow taken into... Um, into was that considered when they were calculating what had happened to people after was the policing system in the U.S. Were systems in place in the U.S. where they would go and take the richest black communities and burn them down? Was that taken into consideration? Thank you. So I'm going to stop with those two questions, come to the panelists and discuss them. The first one was directed to Tony. Um, so yes, Ethiopia, the only African country not to be colonized, and then the second part of that question, that this um, Chinese involvement that you speak so highly of is seen by many as a second wave of colonialism. I mean, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah uh, uh, I mean, Ethiopia is one, Kenya is another, Ghana is another. I mean, I, I just picked that as an example. Um, so, and Kenya certainly did have colonialism. Um, and um, what, what I'm just saying is that the model that um, is is being used to sort of almost kind of, and it's, it's very much in line with what Garvey wanted in a sense, was that Africa's now seen as a serious player on the, on the planet. And I think that's the key. Um, and, and that's really what we're talking about is the, what is the difference? What's going to make the difference for the lives of those, those, those young people in those countries and how to move them on? It's investment. And I think that the issue about China is interesting because... Yes, I'm, look, I have no doubt about it the Chinese are trying to do some rip-off act here. However, if you look at the amount of infrastructure now in the Caribbean, I, I, I live in Jamaica and I've just kind of, at last we've got some road systems, you know, which, which were just never there before when the British were, 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 were engaging with us. And so I think that um, uh, there, is a, there is a deal going on here and part of the problem, and let me tell you one of the problems that that whole Chinese um, interaction with um, the Caribbean and Africa, and I think um, Catherine did kind of um, hint at this, is that the deals are brokered by those post-colonial leaders. And some of the backhanders and some of the corruption that goes on um, is as much um, as we've, we've had... Um, in, in, in the colonial period, look, I, at the moment, uh, as I said, I just want to keep alluding to Jamaica, but I live there, and uh, last year, 94 billion Jamaican dollars, and that's a lot of money, I suppose, it, 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 in Jamaican dollars, that's not, you know, it might not be a great, but it's a few billion, I've just got, I've just been lost in corruption. And so I think that, that there is that to look at, rather than just see this as, as, as something that is, you know, is, is, is a colonial thing and, 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 and a slavery thing. I just think that we should be thinking about how we manage our own countries, how as grown-ups now in the region that we, we move on. And we want to move on not from reparations, but we want to move on with investment. Can I just say something about Trinidad, just quickly? Um, Yes, uh, I, I've been to Trinidad lots of times and the, and the young lady made a good point about what's happened there. But Trinidad has had a lot of oil, which is just completely wasted as well. And, you know, so, you know, you, 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 one has to take responsibilities of some of our actions in the region and really kind of ask ourselves some hard questions about what we do with our resources. 
Would, he, would you like to respond, Kinde? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, I think it's interesting you're saying that black people should take responsibility, but the West should take no responsibility for the situation which we find ourselves in. Which is essentially your argument, right? <laughs> I appreciate that you have a difficult argument to make. I just never thought I'd hear it made in that manner. I mean, <laughs> Malcolm X, Garvey, the, Malcolm X actually says very clearly that self-help is one thing. We need self-help. But we have to understand that we are in a position where we've been wholly disadvantaged. And so in order for us to help ourselves, we need to be given what we are owed. It's simple as that. And once we are paid what we are owed, we will go away and do exactly what we need to do. So I'm sorry, X, Garvey, the Black Power Movement, this is where reparations comes from, the debate. So to invoke them is just, it's, I'm sorry, it's a kind of madness. And also, look, I, I would like to say that Africa is rising. There is this whole logic, but it's, it's, unfortunately it's, a, it's not true. GDP is the very worst way to measure uh, improvement. The reason Ethiopia's GDP... So the reason Ethiopia's GDP is 8.5% is because of Chinese investment, right? China puts money in. However, do you know that when China puts its infrastructure money in, about 85% of it goes to China. So actually, Ethiopia is spending its own money to pay China to build its roads. And you think this is a good thing for Africa? In fact, unfortunately, look, look, positive thinking is a good idea, but you can't delude yourself into believing that the situation is better than it is. <laughs> the unfortunate reality is, if you actually look at the situation in Africa, Africa is kind of the only continent that is going backwards. It really is. And this is, this is the unfortunate truth. The population of Africa is going to probably treble or quadruple in the next hundred years. The estimates from the World Bank, and these are recent estimates, say that by 2050, nine out of ten people who live in extreme poverty will live on the African continent. The growth which you are so celebrating is growth which only helps the elite and only helps the Chinese and only helps the West. It is not growth finally that helps Africa. And when you talk about investment, this is reparation. Actually, yes. Africa needs investment, deserves investment, should have investment because the West owes it a major debt and we should use that investment properly. Thank you. Thank you. So the next question was directed to you as well, Tony. I think some of it's been covered in what we've just discussed, but we can touch on it briefly. So in the US, um, white people, descendants of Europeans, benefited from educational advantages that they were given, many advantages that they were given, educational, professional, um, etc. cetera. Um, how do you respond to that, given that the argument you make is that black people are not deserving of being given any of those advantages? Well, I mean, I don't actually understand really what, what, what I mean, the, we're not denying here that the injustices took place and, and that slavery was an atrocity. I mean, no, no one is even thinking about that. I mean, uh, not, you know, in, in, as, as a real issue. I mean, and as Catherine said, you know, we, we, we don't, it's not the, I think this is where the argument seems to be that you think that you're looking at the table now and thinking these lot here are kind of um, in, try, in some way trying to kind of support or kind of defend anything like that. I mean, an injustice is an injustice. And so all I can say is I agree, you know, that that's an injustice, you know. And then to, to, to the second part of the question, which, Catherine, it was based on some of the points that you made. How do black people, the descendants of African slaves, catch up with the advantages that have been given to every other racial group. Okay, so it's important to just say as well, of course there have been advantages, of course, you know, when you say why weren't blacks given anything, 
well, because that, that's the history. I mean, nobody's saying that was right, right? Nobody's saying that, uh, that, that blacks haven't had a hard time. Um, this idea of what is owed to us, what By is owed blacks, to them. you mean people of African descent? Yes. Um, when we say what is owed to them, we aren't them, right? The, 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 these people are no longer with us. Uh, we, the, the problem is, is that identity politics uh, it forces us to see everyone in a particular group as opposed to seeing people as individuals. And as I was saying, you know, the child of a rapist should not have to carry the burden of his father's crimes. Um, it's important to recognize that people are individuals, uh, and those individuals are responsible for the things that they do. But how, do, how does one account for other groups who are perceived as groups being given certain advantages? Well, can I just so it was that? unfair. Yeah, I mean, I'm, there's no question, right? And it how do unfair. we redress that now? And but, how do people of African descent catch up with those advantages? Would either, would anyone on the Well, well in terms of catching of up, um, I mean, I'm, I'm one for talking about education. You know, I'm a headmistress. I believe very much in the power of education. I believe that um, if we were able to give all of our children an excellent education, that uh, individuals born into poverty can change their stars. Um, the, there are currently in the world 20 million slaves. It is bizarre that we are talking about slavery from hundreds of years ago, when right now in this world there are 20 million slaves from North Korea to India, gender mistreatment of women across, the, across various countries. But we don't talk about this. Kahinde spoke very specifically about the legacy that endures to this day and how this um, amount of money was only paid off in 2015 and how we very much live with the afterlife of slavery. Would, would you like to respond to this in any way, Esther or Kahinde? Um, I mean, look, for me, this red herring of saying that, well, every society has slavery and so we don't have to deal with it is very problematic. We're talking about a specific experience that happened to a group. And I'm talking as somebody who claims that African identity that has been denied me and many others. And many of us who are, you know, that's part of the restitution, which is a principle of reparations. So we have to redefine the languages that we use and stop infusing Eurocentric ideas and perspectives into essentially what is an issue about us as African people, okay? And we need to have cognitive justice in the way that we even talk about our ancestors. Our ancestors lived through us. This is not an academic debate for so some of us, okay? So we are, we are them, and that is why some of us are raised in this time to continue the struggle that they began. Every successive generation of African people from the beginning of chattel enslavement in the 1400s has championed reparations. And I explained what reparations mean in international law. You cannot reduce reparations to money and compensation. So those that resisted enslavement, they were seeking their freedom, which was restitution of their dignity, their humanity, and their right to be free, their right to go to their homeland. Yes.
And what, what, what would you say to Tony's argument that this approach is unhelpful and that it keeps black people locked in a sort of victim mentality? <laughs> well, no, I mean, I think, because I think, I think I want to, I, I think I want to, because part of this is this idea that, you know, the people who are, it's, it's an individual thing and the criminals aren't here anymore. That's absolute nonsense. In the UK, we have what we call the Proceeds of Crime Act, right? If you, if you profit from a crime, if my dad profits from a crime, I guarantee you, government's going to take that money from me. And that's what we're talking about. Okay, the slavers aren't here, but their profits are here, and they are the things which are benefiting the others, <coughs> and, are not, and are disadvantaging us, right? So when you were saying that the idea that reparations is, 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 is somehow bad for us, negative for us, I'm looking at Sister Esther, reparations activist. Some of the most active people in the community today are around the issue of reparations. It is simply nonsense, actually. And it's quite, quite offensive. What's being said is, this damage has been done to us, restitution is owed, and when we get this restitution, we'll go and do what we like. Right? No, no, nobody's, no, no, no. nobody's asking for white approval, they're just no, saying no. we should get paid what can, we can like. Can I come in here now? I, th I think that um, that's the problem, that in fact we're waiting. It's like the rivers of Babylon, we're waiting and we're weeping down there until somebody, till white people come and save us. Now what, 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 what I'm arguing for is <laughs> that, that. No, let me finish. What I'm arguing for is I share your passion equally, probably more, for the um, injustices done to my ancestors. But when I, when I, when I look at what um, uh, I see in terms of uh, Jamaica, in terms of Trinidad, in terms of Ethiopia and Africa, I don't see a crushed people. I don't see a people who have been totally wiped out because of slavery and in colonialism, I see a people really, in a sense, um, already, already have had, have already been inventing themselves, resisting, um, making, re repairing themselves, um, and also needing now, in a sense, to kind of join the world. One, one, one of the things that when my, when my ancestors came off of the plantation, the project really was this. How, how, do we, how do we join the world again? How do we reconnect? Because we've been cut off from it all these years. And that really was, was, was a mindset. What's gone wrong, and I agree with Catherine here, is that a politics came along. And you, you, you talk about the Black Power Movement, and you talk about people like Marion Angelou and, and Marcus Garvey and all these other great black leaders. They were not talking about reparations in, in, in that identity politics sense. What, no, what they were talking about was the fact that black people themselves could change the world, could have the resources, could have the self-reliance to move on. Now, you're talking about the fact that, okay, we, in order to move on, we need um, X amount of resource to do it. Yeah, of course you do need that. But what, what, but what the relationship is, is no longer one about um, uh, begging for this thing or asking for reparations in the past. What it is, is actually saying, invest in me now, work with me now, because we can actually help the world, we can change the world. There's a much more positive way of looking at it. And I just think that the idea that Africa is not going to be, in the future, um, one of the greatest spaces in, on the planet, uh, is, is, is not... China is not going into Africa just, just because 
it's there. There's, there, there are great resources there. The people themselves are so talented. And they're taking them. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, resor- and resources are there. Resor- let me finish. Resources are there. I'm going to jump in there because... Yeah, yeah. I would like to take two more questions, which I think we have time for. Um, we started slightly late, so we'll go slightly over. Um, I'll come to this gentleman here, number one. All right, first of all, I appreciate y'all for, for talking here. It's a, it's, a tough, it's a tough topic to approach, especially when you're in the against side. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, <laughs> First of all, Catherine, I want to approach that, uh, that same analogy about the, the father's sins. If a person, you can't, it's not, a, it's not an excuse to say that many people committed uh, slavery. If a murderer is caught, you don't get off scot-free because there are unsolved murders. You were held responsible for what you are you know, caught for. I think it's interesting that we're talking about this in the sense of investment, and I think it's a good idea. We, we, uh, Kende, you mentioned all these monuments they built, uh, these universities are glorious, and they're built on the backs of slaves. This isn't a preparation, this is, this is seed money, and I would like uh, maybe a reinvestment in the people who invested in the countries that they live in. So that, that's, the, that's the second point. I think my main concern, concern when I came in here was, was. Is this a question? Can we have a, yes, a question? Yes, this is a question. This is the question. This is the question. I don't know if I can do reparations if it will cause upheaval. Fairness is very fairness is important, and fairness hasn't been given to to black people who have been affected by slavery. But if getting reparations will mean that white people will feel like they've been betrayed, and then we'll have it on civil unrest, is that something we should concern about? Okay, thank you. Civil war and then unrest. Thank you. We're really, we're running out of time. The, okay. very, the very last answer I'm going to come to Kahinde was, um, what about the argument, which is one of the arguments that those who are against reparations make, that this, the, the, um, the process of reparations could incite more social unrest and could cause resentment with the right or with white um, interest groups? Well, when people, very lose, short well answer. when people lose things, they often get upset. But sometimes people have to lose things. And if that is what makes things fairer, then you just have to accept that people won't be happy about it. I mean, you can't, I mean this is part of the problem with a lot of, of our politics, is that we have tried to keep everybody happy. No one was worried about keeping us happy when they were enslaving us for 300 years, or imprisoning us at mass rates, or the police are shooting us in the streets. So again, what you often have with these arguments is we're expected to be morally superior and have these crazy uh, expectations that we're not expecting from, the, from the, the, the master, if you like. The other thing I really want to say about this is the question here is should the West pay reparations? And it's actually a very simple argument. No, it's not complicated. The West is, you know what the West is. The West is very clearly defined, right? Historically, contemporarily. The West used a system of slavery which was utterly based on race. The idea is not based on race. It's a complete offensive fantasy. I'm sorry. There were other systems of slavery. The system of slavery we're talking about was based on the race exploitation of enslaved Africans. This enriched the West beyond all manner of identity, and you have already paid reparations. You paid them to slave owners, and this should make you mad and burn inside. And (laughs) it is also 
really, and, it, and to the question that somebody asked before, you can actually calculate it. So in America, it's estimated it's about $15 trillion that the enslaved are owed. You can go back and say unpaid labor, you can go back and say um, distress, etc., etc. All of these things which are enshrined in international law, it is perfectly possible to come up with a number and say the West should pay for it. Because it's difficult to work out how that happens, that does not mean it should not happen. And the question we're asking today is, should it happen? And of course it should. Thank you. On that note, I'm going to ask each of the speakers working in reverse order to just take one minute to sum up their position, and then we'll have the results of the vote. So I'll start with you, Temi. Yeah, I mean... And one minute. Yeah, <laughs> you'll get one minute. I mean, my argument is this, is that I, I think that it's really now about the discourse around this, and what I mean by discourse is the sense that um, what we are looking at here is a situation where I believe on a national basis and on an individual basis that in fact the whole notion of reparations is actually regressive because it doesn't recognize um, three things. It doesn't recognize this, this powerful tool of self-reliance that we've used and we, we're using within slavery as well to help us. And we've, we've, we've shifted to, a, to almost that victim um, mentality. It doesn't realize Africa as a site for opportunity because it always has to position Africa as, 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 as sort of diminished so that more money can be poured into it. And, and, and also the notion of success that black people in themselves are successful and can do and that the world for them is a positive space. It doesn't want to do that. It wants to continually remind us and remind our young people that the whole thing is a nightmare. I and have to jump in there because yeah. we're, we're seriously over yeah. time, but thank you. Esther, I'll come to you now if you could sum up in one moment, in one minute, please. Sure. Um, there is a debt owed, but it's not just a financial debt. Now we're also recognizing an ecological debt and the climate and the ecological emergency is disproportionately impacting African people in Africa and the African diaspora where there was chattel enslavement and colonization. Reparations under international law means full repair. It's holistic, restitution, guarantees of non-repetition, compensation, rehabilitation and satisfaction. And finally, I'd just like to say that ultimately the restitution is about the restoration of African self-determination, African sovereignty. In this day and age, 101 British corporations control over one trillion worth of Africa's key energy and mineral resources. This is not about what happened yesterday. We can't do anything about that, but we can sure as hell Stop the Maangamizi of today. Thank you. Catherine, if you could sum up in one minute, please. Yeah, well, um, I don't think practically uh, reparations can work. I think that uh, if we continually talk about reparations instead of uh, thinking how to uplift certain uh, communities, uh, thinking about education, for instance, and how that can help, uh, and instead indulge in victimhood, which uh, can, it doesn't help anyone. Um, it, uh, it, it isn't helpful, and um, it, slavery was a grave stain on our history, but there are 20 million slaves that exist nowadays, and I think we should be more interested 
in bettering that situation and bettering the lives of uh, people who are in difficulty in this country uh, by investing our time in uh, programs and education and so on to help them raise up from the poor situations that they're in. Thank you. Anke Hinde, the last words with you. Um, I just really want to emphasize that nobody on this side of the table is saying that we are victims and that we are relying and waiting for white people. Never. I mean, never have black people in any situation, even in slavery, done this. We've always resisted, we've always moved, we've always marched, we've always tried to build. A number of the people who uh, Tony incorrectly quoted actually were, have been part of that movement to do so, right? And what's being said here is that we are going to continue anyway, and the, 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 one of the most positive things about black history is that we have done so even in these appalling conditions. But as Malcolm, and as Malcolm says, though, the knife's still in our back. And we'll still go on whether the knife's in our back or not. But the reparations argument is a recognition that please take the knife out and it'll make a whole lot easier for us to have freedom. Thank you. the author of several articles arguing for black reparations, and you can find a lot of listings and publications out there online on him. Arguing against the proposition is Richard Epstein, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at the NYU School of Law. He's also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's also a senior lecturer for the University of Chicago. He is also the author of several articles arguing against black reparations, and you can find a lot of his publications online as well. All right, a little housekeeping here. For those of you watching the live stream right now, this broadcast, I'd like to bring your attention to the link right there at our pre-debate poll on reparations. We want to know what you think, so please fill out that poll. Uh, that'll be closing here in just a few minutes. You'll also have a chance at the end of this debate to cast your vote on reparations after hearing from speakers from both sides. Now, there will be four rounds to today's debate. And I want to explain the format as to how we're going to do this. All right, our first round, in round one, each speaker will have 10 minutes to lay out their position on reparations, starting with the affirmative side. Then we'll move on to round two. Now, in round two, each speaker will then have five minutes to reply to the points of the other speaker and also clarify their position. In round three, the speakers will have an opportunity to actually um, ask each other questions and speak directly to one another's points and also to one another's clarifications. Now, in the final round, the audience, you will play a big role in this. You will have an opportunity to ask our speakers questions. You can also enter your questions there at any time through the chat there on the U of H live stream site, and you can put those questions there as uh, soon as we start speaking or as soon as you start hearing uh, speakers from both sides. So don't be afraid to go, uh, go ahead and put those questions in right there on the U of H live stream site as we begin the debate. All right, here we go, friends. We're going to start with round one, our opening statement on the affirmative side. Mr. Ray, you have 10 minutes. Thank you, Chompy. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Definitely want to thank ABC 13 in Houston, as well as the Hobby School of Public Affairs for hosting this, as well as to my, uh, my debater here. I want to start off with a quote. 
We have come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come marked insufficient funds, where we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. made that quote in his classic I Have a Dream speech, which he gave in 1963 in Washington, D.C. Dr. King was firmly in favor of reparations. I want to be clear about why we're here today. We are here because the debt is owed, and reparations are about paying that debt. Given the lingering legacy of slavery on the racial wealth gap, the monetary value we know that was placed on the enslaved blacks, the fact that other groups have received reparations, and the fact that blacks were originally awarded reparations only to have them rescinded, provide overwhelming evidence that it is time to pay reparations to the the descendants of enslaved black people. Making the American dream an equitable reality demands that the same U.S. government that denied wealth to blacks restore that deferred wealth through reparations to their descendants. I want to address a few questions right up front. First, why are reparations necessary? Some broad statistics from the National Museum for African American History and Culture in D.C. If you haven't gone on yet, you should do that. But some of these stats start of import here related to American slavery. First, 12.5 million black people were shipped in chains from Western Africa to the Americas. About 15% of the enslaved died during transport, mostly due to brutal physical treatment and suffocation, but also through acts of resistance, such as fighting back, jumping into the Atlantic, and refusing to eat. Here goes the monetary values that's important. $25 million was the amount of bank credit issued from mortgages that used enslaved blacks as collateral to purchase the state of Louisiana in 1859. We know about the Louisiana purchase, but that particular detail is oftentimes left off. $29 million was the value placed on cotton produced by enslaved blacks in 1822. 1822, $29 million. $250 million was the value placed on cotton produced by enslaved blacks in 1861. We can see the inflation rate related to cotton. And we also know that into the late 1800s and early 1900s, that as cotton production started to wane, lynchings also increased, which were correlated, obviously, as people were acting out in terms of their economic woes. Here's the big number. Over $3 billion was the value assigned to the physical bodies of enslaved black Americans to be used as free labor and production. That was in 1860. This was more money at the time that was invested in factories and railroads combined. Slavery also enriched white slave owners and their descendants, and it fueled the country's economy while suppressing wealth-building strategies for the enslaved. The United States has yet to compensate the descendants of enslaved Black Americans for their labor. Slavery also disrupted families, as one in three marriages were split up due to slaves being sold, and one in five children were separated from their parents. So again, when we define reparations, reparations is a system of redress for egregious injustices, and reparations is not a foreign act to the United States. 
Native Americans have received land and billions of dollars for various benefits and programs for being forcibly exiled from their native lands. That should have happened. Japanese Americans received $1.5 billion for being interned during World War II. That also should have happened. And additionally, the United States, via the Marshall Plan, helped to ensure that Jews receive reparations for the Holocaust, including making various investments over time, when in 1952, West Germany agreed to pay $3.45 billion in Deutsche Marks to Holocaust survivors. That should have happened as well, and the United States should have continued, as they've done, to ensure that those payments are made. This is the bottom line. Black Americans are the only group that has not received reparations for state-sanctioned racial discrimination, while slavery afforded some white families the ability to accrue tremendous wealth multiple times over. And we should note that slavery was particularly brutal. So as my Brookings colleague Andre Perry often says, the United States is not against reparations. It is just against reparations for black people. Accordingly, it's important to note a few missed opportunities. The big one is 40 acres and a mule. People hear that term. They oftentimes don't know where it comes from. We'll see right after the Civil War, where finally, based on Juneteenth, we know that some of the last enslaved people found out that they were free down in Texas and Galveston that this was the first opportunity for the United States to get it right. Union leaders, including General William Sherman, concluded that each black family should receive 40 acres. Sherman signed what was known as Field Order 15 and allocated 400,000 acres of confiscated Confederate land that was formerly enslaved, enslaved land to black families. Additionally, black families, each black family was supposed to receive a mule that was left over from the war, hence 40 acres and a mule. Yet, after President Lincoln was assassinated, President Johnson reversed Field Order 15 and returned land back to slave owners. Instead of giving blacks the means to support themselves, the federal government empowered former slave owners, including in Washington, D.C., where slave owners were actually paid reparations for lost property, that lost property being formerly enslaved people, and that practice was put in place in nearby states. Many blacks were then forced to go back and work as sharecroppers on the same land where they were once enslaved. So we see multiple times over how that happens. Let's fast forward to another time period in which it could have happened. Let's talk about the New Deal during the Great Depression, where Franklin Roosevelt was president, one of my favorite presidents, but this is where he got it wrong. President Roosevelt ushered us into what we know to be the middle class today by investing $50 billion in New Deal policies. That's currently estimated to be $50 trillion. There were two key policies here, dealing with the GI Bill and Social Security. See, this is also for people who try to say, well, my family wasn't around during slavery. Yeah, but oftentimes, if you're an immigrant, your family was probably around during the time of the Great Depression. And that's of note. When we talk about the GI Bill, there were white soldiers, black soldiers fighting together. Individuals like some of my, some of my ancestors who were fighting for our freedoms. And yet when they returned from war, veterans were able to receive money to go to college, money to send their children to college, money to start up businesses and also money to put down on holds. These were grants that they did not have to pay back that was due them. However, white veterans received that money and black veterans did not. Likewise, when we talk about Social Security, the way that it was originally set up, there were two occupations excluded from Social Security. That was domestic work and farm work. 75% of black people who worked in the South worked in those occupations because black people were still relegated to those jobs just like they were during slavery. That was another opportunity for the United States to get it right, and instead we missed it. So look, as I get ready to close, what should reparations look like? Well, look, we know the monetary value based on uh, put on black people. We know the productivity rate of what was put on them. 
And we also know that when it comes to think about li- thinking about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, a federal reparations package for black Americans is in order. This package should include individual and collective public benefits that not only include direct cash payments, but also a focus on education, home ownership, and business ownership in form of a 21st century New Deal. First, education needs to be taken into account. The average white family today has 10 times the amount of wealth as the average black family. And education does little to close that gap. Black college graduates have seven times less wealth than the average white college graduate. These are people who have done everything people told them to do. So accordingly, based on all the things we know about housing and how equity works, and also the fact that people who attend HBCUs get subprime loans, that we need to focus on four and two year colleges for tuition payments and also for student loan repayment. Second, when we talk about housing, we know that appraisals are still a big issue. We know about redlining. Accordingly, we know that 50% of people's wealth is oftentimes wrapped up in their homes, wealth that black people can't get, even when they've done everything they were supposed to do. So part of a reparations package should include down payment assistance and also housing revitalization to restore some of these communities. Finally, we need business ownership grants. One thing we know, particularly during COVID, is that a large percentage of black families or black small businesses were completely left out of the initial COVID funding, so much so that 41% of black during COVID, according to a Stanford University study. What needs to happen is, and then we also need to ensure that small businesses get the type of land that they need. Let me close with another quote. As Congresswoman Barbara Lee stated in her resolution on truth and reconciliation, contemporary social science, medical science, and the rapidly expanding use of artificial intelligence and social media reveal the cost and potential threats to our democracy if we continue to allow unhealed, entrenched divisions to be ignored and exploited. For those wanting to tell their children that they were on the right side of history and did the right thing in this moment, now is the time to truly show your true morality and what it means to be an advocate and what it means to be a true American by paying reparations to black Americans so that we can finally heal and get past systemic racism. Mr. Wright, thank you. We want to move to the opening statement on the opposing side. Mr. Epstein, you have 10 minutes. Thank you so much. Um, Let me begin by trying to figure out how we put this in some kind of larger context. Uh, What Rayshawn has done in this situation is to talk about all the things that happened uh, with respect to the slavery and other situations as if it were every white person to some extent, every American that was responsible for these things. And there's no particular discussion there about the complications associated with several factors. One is that if you start looking at the way this history ran, it's very much more complicated than one would start to say. So to begin with the fact of the Civil War, uh, there were several hundred thousand Northern American whites who were killed during the Civil War in an effort to end slavery in the South. Uh, They have descendants as well. Many of them paid for this in blood. And so the question that one has to ask is whether or not the descendants of those people who did everything they could within their power in order to end the scourge of slavery, now all reparations upon a top of the ultimate sacrifice that they made under these circumstances. And I think it's extremely difficult to make that kind of claim. Then, of course, it turns out that there are many Americans who came to this country long after slavery was abolished, many Americans who came and worked very actively in the civil rights movement in order to abolish many of the situations that had taken place. Uh, If you start looking at all of those kinds of things, 
it becomes very hard to say why it is that there's a collective responsibility when it turns out that so many individuals who are part of our polity have done everything that they could in order to come out on the other side of that question. I think the second question that you want to do is to set some measure of black progress under these circumstances. The figure that I like to use the most in dealing with this issue is the question of life expectancy. And if you take that number in 1900, which is uh, in the period of Jim Crow, average life expectancies of black individuals was in the neighborhood of 31, 32 years of age. Uh, for white people, it was 47, 48 years. That gap has largely closed. And the close, it's not because of the particular programs that created impediments. It's because the vast transformation in American culture in the time that started in 1900 to the present has resulted in an unleashing of black talent, uh, which essentially has allowed things to equalize in a certain way. Wealth patterns, of course, are different, but so are consumption patterns. And in fact, if you check consumption patterns with respect to white and black individuals in given kinds of industries, you tend to see a fairly systematic difference in the terms of their willingness to save as opposed to their willingness to spend. That cannot be attributed to something that you want to call systemic, and that's a question of individual choices. All of us are entitled to make them, and if you want higher consumption today, you're going to end up with lower rates of benefits tomorrow. Then what you also have to do on this situation is to compare this to other kinds of situations in which we've had situations of compensation. Rayshawn mentions quite properly that there was 40 acres in a mule. This was 40 acres and a mule promised to all the individuals who were slaves at the time that slavery was over. He also mentioned the situation that took place in Germany after the Holocaust, uh, where in fact there were 6 million Jewish people who were killed and there were probably a million survivors in fragmented situations. Uh, the compensation that was given was not given to descendants eight generations later. It was given to the very individuals who had been victimized by these situations. It was well understood that there was no way you could compensate families that was completely wiped out. And the payment for Israel, uh, which was rather substantial at the time, was essentially an effort to try and provide compensation to a nation, which would serve as a rough proxy that you had with respect to the individual losses. We also heard reference made to the situation with respect to the Japanese internment camps, which was another kind of horrific type situation, though no near as bad as slavery. And again, when that took place in 1988, um, it took place with respect to only those people who were survivors of the particular program. No money under those circumstances was allocated to descendants, many of whom had done very well with respect to their own lives, and it was thought to be utterly inappropriate. It's also clear when you made these kinds of compensation programs, the only thing that you did was to give cash to people or kind benefits to people who were the direct victims of that, Nobody thought that the doctrine of reparation was something which required you to make major structural changes in the way in which one ought to work an economy. And it's here I think I do disagree quite profoundly with Rayshon in the way in which he tries to attribute the difficulties associated with the modern situation. I do not think for the most part that a claim of systematic racism is going to work. In order for that to work, you have to have some systematic racism. And it turns out, if you look in the United States at the height of segregation, lasting until the 1950s and so forth, it was easy to target the people whom you think were wrong. But if you try to figure out today whether or not there's a consensus, the overwhelming power of the diversity movement suggests that there are very few systematic races in positions of any kind of power or whatsoever. So the question then is, what are you going to attribute some of the differentials to? 
And I think Rayshon is correct to say that there have been certainly educational deficits and so forth. But if you start going back to the history, what you discover is that the kind of relationships that you had start getting worse after 1950 uh, than they were perhaps 50 years before. And so if you take, for example, black and white unemployment rates in 1948, it turns out that they're roughly equal. That doesn't sound like you need to have reparations for the labor market. You then introduce a minimum wage law. Black labor got lower wages uh, at that time because of lower skill levels. And now, in effect, the minimum wage law started to change the distribution of black and white uh, unemployed workers. And so what you then do is you have the situation today where there are very strong differences. The question is, do you want to attribute this to slavery or systematic racism? No, I think what you want to do is attribute this kind of behavior uh, to the sort of uh, well-intentioned legislation that sometimes backfires when you start to put it into effect. Uh, this is true of a large number of particular programs. And so if you wanted to think, for example, about uh, a zoning type situations, uh, these are generally thought to be highly attractive, but the net effect of many zoning laws has made it impossible uh, to build this, to put up apartment houses of modest means in areas close to public transportation, which would allow people to get themselves to work. And so what I think you want to do is not think first about reparations as a problem for this situation, which is going to create real differences of opinion as to how much is owed and who is going to be eligible. I think what you first want to do is to see what kinds of barriers that you have towards progress, which can be removed. And the advantage of doing it by way of removal is that it doesn't require you to have a very rancorous debate as to how much taxes have to be paid, who is going to get which kind of benefit, what the total levels are going to be, what the budget is, who is going to be eligible. I saw one story about a person who claims to be, and I'm sure it's true, uh, a descendant of a slave on the one side and a white person on the other side, do they owe reparations to themselves? I think if you can clean this thing up by essentially improving opportunities, this would be better. Let me give you a kind of a figure which I think sort of helps make this point a little bit clearer. Uh, you start looking at labor performance and minority communities and so forth. It turns out they do better under Donald Trump than they do under Barack Obama. Uh, why is this? Because Trump was essentially less of a regulator on these domestic issues than Obama was. And if you're less of a regulator, you're going to get rid of the taxes and other barriers to entry. And low-income workers will do much better when these barriers are lifted because they constitute a very large fraction of their wages than people who are on the other side of the distribution. And so therefore, again, a program of market liberalization is going to uh, start to achieve this. And the same thing could be said in virtually every other market that you want to talk about. Uh, we talk about health difficulties and so forth. Let me again mention one of the serious problems. In 1912, there was something known as the Flexner Report put together by very distinguished physicians at Johns Hopkins University. And what they advocated was for very high standards for medical schools. The net consequence of that was to close down large fractions of the black medical schools that had existed and even thrived under a system of segregation. And so this is a classic illustration where a well-intentioned informer starts to create the very kinds of difficulties that we start to avoid. I am a classical liberal. I don't believe in no government. I do believe in a strong government that does certain things. But I think programs that are put into place that are trying to improve the lot of any group by taxing one in order to give to another, for whatever motivation, will in the end backfire and leave everybody worse off than they were before. 
Uh, so as I start to look at this particular situation, I think what we should do, and I guess I have about a minute, is that right, uh, Chauncey? Um, sure. Is that you want to look also at some of the achievements so you get a better perspective of this. It took a lot of guts to get John Brown the Board of Education through. Not at the time, it was not an easy decision. It took a lot of work to get the 1964 Civil Rights through, Act through, the Voting Acts right of 1965, which made a huge difference. And I think what you want to do is to celebrate the success of some of these programs. So where there were systematic exclusions from the polls all the way through the 1950s and 60s, by the time you get to the 2010s and 20s, the level of black participation in many districts is higher than that of white participation. This suggests that we've done something and we've done something right. So rather than, I think, constantly concentrate our attention on the deficits that exist, I think we have to have a more balanced approach, which starts to look at some of the benefits that have been obtained. And so with that, I, I turn it back to you, Chauncey. Thank you. All right, Mr. Epstein, thank you so much. And for our people joining us here for this uh, debate, once again, I want to remind you, if you have any questions for either of our speakers here this evening, you can just put it right there in the chat <laughs> for the of H live stream. We want to go now to round two, starting with the affirmative response and clarification uh, to what Mr. Epstein said. You have five minutes. I'll hand it back over to you, Mr. Ray. All right, thank you. So, you know, I always find it interesting in America that we always try to pat ourselves on the back for just doing the right thing. That, that's kind of how, how this conversation goes. That's what I, what I essentially just heard. I want to make a few points. First, this is not about who has done well, meaning black people have done well. This is about a debt being paid. When you go to the hospital and there is an accident and someone is accidentally killed in forms of malpractice, the debt paid does not matter whether the family has money or not, whether or not they save or not. It is about addressing the wrong. That's what this is about. For some reason with black people, we always move the needle. We got to stay on track. We're talking about a debt that is owed. Let's talk about who should pay. Well, this is a big thing. This is not about individuals. This is about a nation. When uh, money was paid out to a Jew from the Holocaust, Germany paid that out. When money was paid out to Japanese Americans who were interned, the United States paid that out. Individuals do not pay that out. But part of what happens is it's difficult for people to separate their own individual identity from the United States as a nation. And that's one of the problems that we must do. The other thing is every white person was not responsible for Japanese internment, but the United States paid it. Not the people, the United States. Again, every German was not part of the Holocaust. I spent time in Germany. I taught at the University of Mannheim. I studied what was happening there and how they went about healing themselves. The United States is quite far behind that. The other thing is there were people who came um, after World War II and their tax money was paid for Jewish Americans, which, mind you, for Japanese, Japanese Americans who were interned, their reparations did not come through until 1988. See, we have to be clear about the history, that this wasn't something that was happening immediately. Let me go to three other points. First, let's talk about savings. Research actually documents that Black people are actually more frugal with their money. They just have less wealth. Irregardless of that, that really doesn't even matter because we're talking about a debt that's old. Like you don't think about allocating money for somebody who has some kind of malpractice accident on whether or not they're going to save the money or not. We only do that with black people. The other thing is when it comes to systemic racism, systemic racism is unfortunately a, a part of American society. Calling uh, the way that Dr. Epstein mentioned, uh, I think used the term systematic racist as if they are individuals. That's not what we're talking about here. Systemic racism is not part of individuals. And, that, and as that Dr. Eduardo Benia-Silva would say, that racism can exist without racism. This is about racism operating on a systemic level. 
I'm going to try to take 60 to 75 seconds and really try to summarize this so that people understand what's happening here. Quick sociological note. Racism operates on three primary levels, an individual level, a meso level, and a macro level. I'll focus on the two polarizing ends. On the individual level, that's the way people primarily view racism, as if a person is engaging in in racism against somebody else. That happens, sure. What we're talking about, though, is the way that racism is baked into our policies, our rules, our laws, and our regulations. I'll give you a few examples. Let's take the fact that if you just happen to live in a predominantly black neighborhood, your house is instantly worth about $50,000 less. It can be the same builder. It can be built at the same time. And in fact, you can have it appraised and it will appraise for less than it costs to build. That actually just happened in Prince George's County, which happens to be the most affluent black African-American county in the United States. If it happens here, it's happening everywhere. This isn't about what people are doing that they're supposed to be doing. Another thing, let's go down to Georgia and talk about the trial of the McMichaels who are on trial for, for murder for Ahmaud Arbery. In a town that is over 50% black, there's only one black person on the jury. And the judge actually said that this seems a bit discriminatory. That is an example of how racism becomes baked into the judicial system to impact the outcomes that we're talking about. We also know that if you attend predominantly black schools, you're less likely to get funding per student. You're less likely to obtain a job because if you have a black sounding name, say like Rayshon. And then we also know that black people, even when you attend an Ivy League school, you are actually Uh, have a similar rate at getting a job as a white person who attends a state university. Comparatively, a white person who attends an Ivy League school has a much higher chance. So we see that, unfortunately, it's not about what people look like on paper. It's about other things. And we know that when homes are appraised, they continue to be devalued. Bottom line is this. Systemic racism inhibits people's ability to actualize all aspects of the American dream. And when it comes to thinking about how reparations should be allocated and where they come from, Here it goes, and I'll talk about this a little bit later as well. Over 2 billion acres of land in the United States is federal land. Federal land represents 25% of all land in the country. Anybody who owns property knows you can sell it, you can lease it, you can rent it out. That is how reparations can be paid. And talking about under Donald Trump, let's talk about that. In 2018, Donald Trump actually authorized the availability of over 2 million acres of public land in Utah. This was the largest release of public land in U.S. history at a modest rate of $25,000 an acre. This equates to $50 billion. And part of thinking about that money is money that can be allocated for programs to firmly address the root cause of this problem, which is slavery in the United States. Thanks a lot, Mr. Ray. I want to go back to Mr. Epstein. You have five minutes on the opposing response and clarification to Mr. Ray. Thank you. Um, Let me start off with the question about is the debt. And it turns out there are many complicated debts, and they're sometimes collective, as as Mr. Ray says. But if you start looking at the kind of situation, it's important to remember that there are also statutes of limitations that are imposed with respect to these rates. And every single case in which reparations has been paid has been paid to the individuals who've received it. And if it turns out that you can't do it within that particular time, you do not do it at all. Uh, When you did the Japanese reparations, they were paid by the nations because it was national policies that did it. I understand all of that, but you did not do it with respect to the descendants. So the question then is, is there a situation why these debts are completely open ended in terms of the way in which they go so that at no particular point could you ever decide that they are done. And we're talking here, if you're talking about slavery, about an institution that ended in the United States about 160 years ago. Um, And if you start talking about what happened since that time, 
and you're trying to figure out what did happen in there, the question you have to ask is if you're going to start to think about this as a debt, you start to think about some of the various programs that were made, often huge transfer programs, particularly in more recent years, as though it's a down payment with respect to that debt. And so it's not just a question of looking at that particular time. You start looking at these programs. And if you're trying to figure out the amount of wealth that has been transferred from white individuals to black individuals through a whole variety of programs, this is going to turn out to be a fairly substantial number. And if you're trying to figure out what the debt is that you're trying to liquidate, there's really no way to do it. The great tragedy about the gains that were made by individuals who own slaves is that they destroyed the economy. They hurt everybody. They themselves got some kind of benefit, but the benefit that they got was not shared by anybody else. In fact, slavery hurt all sorts of individuals, both white and black, because it destroyed labor markets and made the overall country far less prosperous than it turned out to be. And so I, I don't think when you want to start about this thing, you want to treat this debt as though it's somehow a, a sanctified social thing. Debts are very complicated. As the time goes on, it turns out that the claim for their repayment under these sorts of situations are weaker than you might otherwise expect. And then just trying to figure out what it is that we talk about with systemic racism being baked into the kind of system. Well, I mean, there are many cases in which there are programs that have disparate impact. But again, before you just quote a single statistic, what you have to do is to try to figure out what's going on. And so if you say that, yes, well, it turns out you have an identical house in a black neighborhood that you have in a white neighborhood, and therefore they ought to appraise the same, somebody's going to come back at you and says, well, what's the rate of, of maintenance that you've had on this house? Then they're going to sort, what's the caliber of the schools you have in the neighborhood? What's the level of crime that you start to have? And when you start to do that, you then may be able to find out kinds of situations um, in which it turns out that they're perfectly rational explanations apart from racism, why it is that these kinds of differences start to exist. Uh, then when you start looking at the kinds of programs that we have today, um, do we count this against reparations? If you start looking at the admission standards at an Ivy League school, uh, you find out that the number of points that you have to score on the SAT if you're white are far higher than if you're Asian, even higher still when it turns out that they are um, Asian people is against black people, a whole situation. Then you start looking at, well, now then they graduate. What's going to happen? Well, again, you have to control the various things. They have weaker academic credentials going in. Uh, the question that you ask is when they're going out, what are going to be the majors? So if it turns out that your white students go into petroleum engineering and quantitative subject matters, they're going to get much higher incomes than somebody who starts to go into a liberal arts field. You have to control for these things before you start to make very strong judgments one way or another about whether or not the institutions in question have done it. Then, of course, one of the things that we said back in 1964 about racial discrimination is that the dominant form of this was intentional. And indeed, it was intentional. Now people are saying it's not intentional, it's just baked into a particular system. But also baked into the system are institution after institution and party after party who are dedicated in every way, shape, or form to eliminate the vestiges that we've had with respect to segregation. And so what, instead of talking about what's quote-unquote baked in implicitly, we also have to speak what's baked in explicitly. And in the United States, there is no formal policy that is put into place today, which is designed to perpetuate anything that was done which was wrong at any other time. And so as you start to go through all of these particular programs, it seems to me that trying to figure out how you rectify 
wrongs that took place 160 years ago is a dead loser. If you're trying to figure out what's going on more recently, uh, you cannot just simply form one particular side and say it's the systematic stuff that you did is bad. You have to also look at the other side on this and figure out what the offsets and so forth are. You know, I'm old enough to remember what it was like living in the United States when Brown v. Board of Education came down. I was 11 years old at the time. And you could see the segregation. You knew everything that was going on. The transformation in American life in both the public and the private spaces has been nothing short of spectacular since that time. And, and so to try to say that all of this stuff is somehow or other an image uh, because of what's been baked in, it seems to me that when we start to look at these things, it's absolutely critical that we take into account the positive achievements that have been made, give them due credit, and then try to build on those. And I think the effort to try and go back to past claims and to say it's a collective debt that is owed from 150 years ago will not work. I think if you're trying to do it on systematic racism, the claim is sufficiently fuzzy in so many ways. There's so many counterfactuals that it's not going to work at that point today. I appreciate why it is that there are things that are owed and why people are duly upset. I am certainly in favor of any institution that is private that wants to make voluntary contributions to any particular program for any reason is certainly to do so. And if Georgetown University wants to make a program which will help the descendants of slaves, by all means, they should be able to do so. Uh, but I think that in the end, uh, we cannot find either in the situation of slavery long gone or the very complicated social patterns that we have today, sufficient grounds to have the huge transfer programs that Professor Ray has advocated. Got you. All right. Our questions are coming in from some members of our audience, but right now we want to give uh, you all a chance to ask each other questions. I want to start with you, Dr. Ray. You can have your first question to ask Mr. Epstein. All right, great. So, you know, look, look. I, I think one of the things about this is if any racism exists similar to sexism, we should aim to dispel it from this country. And as a sociologist, we control for things. We control for a whole lot of stuff. I could send you some studies after this. That's what we do. We control for stuff. My, my, my first main question is, as we think about uh, what just happened with the recent election on Tuesday. We know the two cities in particular that are quite different, Greenbelt, Maryland, Detroit, Michigan, just voted to have uh, reparations commissions to pursue this. These are voters voting in two very different types of communities that I know quite well because I studied at mm -hmm. University of Michigan and then Greenbelt is right down the road from College Park from the University of Maryland. And we also know that in the state of Virginia, that the state legislature um, recently ruled, and this is important because, as, as you just noted, um, in Virginia, they elected uh, a Republican governor. And so Republicans and Democrats have came together to actually say that state universities, including the University of, of Virginia, need to figure out the legacy of how slavery helped to create these endowments like Georgetown. The point of saying this is clearly this has moved into the public space. We could talk about Evanston. We could, we could talk about uh, what's happening in Rhode Island. We could talk about what's happening in, in Asheville. What is your reaction to these particular public movements and the shift in public opinion and actual voters saying that they want to see reparations move forward? Look, I certainly think as a matter of democratic legitimacy, if you've got a huge majority of votes that are going to vote for something, I'm not going to turn around and say that it's unconstitutional. The question is, when these commissions get together, exactly what are the arguments going to be made and what kinds of compromises are going to be worked out? 
And I don't think from the way in which one states the problem, you could do this because there are many other trends that you see at the same time. And so, for example, with all the chaos that took place in a place like Minneapolis and so forth, all the movements to essentially get rid of the police department and put in a department of public safety, I think, um, indicated that there's a lot of uneasiness about some of the more extreme views on that particular side. And so that the whole situation that we have in, in many cases is much more complicated. So fine, they want to put their commissions together if they're going to vote it and it's by majority. I'm not making a constitutional argument. What I would do, however, is I would say, let's see what you're trying to put together. So you mentioned the University of Virginia. Well, somebody would go back to the history and see what kinds of programs it had. But it's one thing to have a single institution like the University of Virginia figure out what to do and then have Congress decide to do this for the entire United States. And I'm very cautious about the latter. I'm always willing to be respectful on the former. In fact, in a particular case, there may be something of sufficient power that I might decide to vote on the other way. I'm not trying to be categorical, except against this kind of global claim uh, that if you look at the United States, all 333 million people in this country should be treated the same way. Okay, so that's my answer. All right, now, Mr. Epstein, I'll give you the floor to ask Dr. Yeah. Ray your question. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we've had in the United States are other kinds of programs which are designed to cater sort of preferences by way of restitution, including the university space. And so if you look, for example, at the University of California system, uh, there is now in place a number of programs which insist that before you even look at the academic qualifications of anybody, you give them an affirmative action study. And the one particular answer that will get you a flunk is to say, we ought to do this on a colorblind basis and look at the content of your character and your qualifications and not racial preferences. So when they did this at the University of Davis, uh, what happened is they virtually got all women and minority candidates and nobody else was through. So the question I'm going to ask is, do you think that we should use in these universities these kinds of screens before we make our academic appointments or whether we ought on the questions of academic hiring, I'll go back to more traditional contexts of merit, or worrying about maybe affirmative action at the edges, but not treating it as a precondition for decision. So how do you respond to or what do you think about that? Yeah, good question. So I think it's important for people to realize the history here. This is part of a legacy of affirmative action policies in education. And I think we only have to look at uh, in, 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 in letting black people were unqualified in. That's always the narrative. But actually, when they did the analysis, they found that actually wasn't the case. And the Supreme Court ruled at that time. They said in 25 years, I think this was 1978, late 70s, they said in 25 years, we hope race is no longer, is no longer needed to be included to make these assessments. We fast forward to 2003, and we have the University of Michigan case, where in that case, a plaintiff brought a suit forward saying that she didn't get into law school because unqualified black people were getting in. Again, that's the claim. See, we've got to think about this history. Part of what's happened in America is that the social construction of race has been used to justify the science of race, meaning genetic supposed differences by race that lead to the justification of exploitation of race for economic gains. So in Michigan, when that case came before the Supreme Court, they said, you know what? We actually didn't find credence in your claim about race, but if you had brought your case about gender, you would have won. Because we have definitely been letting men in who have much lower outcomes and lower scores than women do. But we didn't have a big problem with that, did we? We only had a problem when it came to race. Let's go down to Texas, where we are right now in Houston. 
Part of what happened in Texas, a lot of people know, it was a Fisher case where at University of Texas, a student didn't get in. She said that the reason why she didn't get in is because University of Texas was letting in unqualified black people. Texas actually did something that was really, really important. What Texas did, similar to Arkansas, started focusing on geographic location. Because one thing they realized is you can take cities like Gary, Indiana, Baltimore, Philly, uh, D.C., and you can literally take misfits. You can literally take a map from 100 years ago and put it on top and look at biracial composition, and you see that people have not hardly moved at all. Black people still live in the same location, and white people overall still live in the same location. Unfortunately, segregation has continued, and people only have to look to a 2007 Supreme Court case in Louisville, Kentucky, which has allowed for segregation to to creep its head up and expand. The point of mentioning Texas and Arkansas is that what they have is now a policy in Texas that if you're in the top 10% of your class, then all of a sudden you can get admitted. California has a similar policy. Arkansas does it for medical school. Why is that? Because they realize that, unfortunately, Race and racism is baked into where people end up being able to live, and opportunities are afforded by that. If you, have, you can be the smartest person in, on the planet, but if you grow up in an area that doesn't have AP courses, and you're all of a sudden competing with some students down the street where they take an AP course every half an hour, they're going to have a higher GPA because you can inflate your GPA with AP courses. It's not because that student wasn't smart. It's because they didn't have the opportunity. And I know a whole lot of black kids that are like that compared to some of the narratives that people think of just people getting into college for no reason. So we have to put the the affirmative action and the court cases in a proper context. The point is this. When the Supreme Court ruled on the University of Texas case, you know what they said? The same thing they said in the Baki case. They said, we hope in 25 years race won't have to be used. And unfortunately, we're still here because we haven't been willing to fully admit and grapple with the depths of the way that racism manifests in society. I want to go to uh, Mr. Epstein. You, you, you hear Dr. Ray's um, you know, talks on this. He talked about uh, the educational deficiencies. He also talked about uh, mm-hmm. the racism embedded in the Justice Department and the justice system. He also talked about the Native Americans, Japanese Americans, and the Jews um, all, all getting some sort of reparations program or some sort of reparations. When you look at black Americans as being the only group to not have some kind of system of redress, and you hear the term, a debt that is owed. What comes to mind, and why don't you think a debt is owed? Well, first of all, I mean, at least in the United States, there's never been a program of Jewish reparations. I mean, what you were talking about was the German program, not the American program, and I think it's important to understand, and that's notwithstanding the fact that if you go back to the 1930s, there was an enormous amount of discrimination against Jews. If you Listen to Father Coughlin talk and rant in the 1930s. It was a really horrific experience. And my own father basically never could outgrow that sense that there were people who were after him from all sorts. So that's at least the background. I think the answer is you can say that there are debts owed uh, at one particular point in time, but then you also have to say that the defense is to paying the debt at least now. And one of the payments that you start to worry about is who are going to be the recipients. Uh, it turns out that some people you're going to talk about are people who have one-fifth of slave owners or one-tenth of previous slaves, but they're intermarriage in many ways. Are they part of the paying class? Are they part of the non-paying class? You don't have that problem when you're looking at this with one generation. You know exactly who it is. 
The moment you go to eight generations, it turns out that there's probably nobody, all of whose ancestors are slaves. And there are going to be more people, obviously, who have no slavery. But you can't simply find the clarity with respect to the they who are to be paid that you were under the other type of situation. It also turns out that there's so many other things that have been done in response to this, not in a formal program of reparation, uh, but in effect, which has had enormous benefits under these circumstances. I can assure you what now Ben with Professor Ray said, affirmative action programs are alive and well in universities. And in fact, when I wrote about the Michigan case, uh, the position I took may surprise him a bit. I said, there are gaps that you're gonna have to worry about in the educational system. You can't pretend that they're not there. Uh, but my standard in trying to figure out how a public university ought to dole out its stuff is to look at private universities and to the extent that they are constantly engaged in this kind of activity. Indeed, I've run an affirmative action program myself when I was a dean for a very short period of time. Uh, public institutions should have exactly the same way. And so I have disagreed in terms of affirmative action programs with the Supreme Court uh, when it says you ought to apply a public colorblind system. But on the other hand, I certainly want to do a colorblind system when it comes to criminal offenses. So I think the answer is there are a lot of decentralized ways to start to deal with these things. And trying to do this at a natural level is going to provoke a firestorm of protest by all sorts of people. And I think if you could decentralize the inquiry, you 